We are in a revolution. But it is a revolution in which the side that fires the first shot loses. We will not fire any shots because our weapon is uncommon good sense. Hello and welcome to Tractor Time. Tractor Time is brought to you by Barn to Door and Acres USA, the voice of eco-agriculture. I'm your host, Ben Trollinger, editor of Acres USA magazine. On this episode, we welcome back investigative journalist Carrie Gillum. For regular listeners, Carrie's a familiar name. This year, she's been joining us each month for a segment we call Industrial Ag Watch, where she keeps us updated on the fearless reporting she does on our industrialized food system. On this episode, we're setting aside more time to really dig into her latest book, The Monsanto Papers, Deadly Secrets, Corporate Corruption, and One Man's Search for Justice. That book is out now, and you can find it at the AcresUSA.com bookstore. Here's also the author of the 2017 book, Whitewash, the story of a weed killer, cancer, and the corruption of science. Whitewash won the coveted Rachel Carson Book Award from the Society of Environmental Journalists. And you can also go back in the archives and listen to a 2019 podcast we did with Carrie about that book. Carrie also works as a reporter and director of research for U.S. Right to Know. Her work frequently appears in The Guardian, and she has more than 30 years of experience covering food and agricultural policies and practices. She also serves on the Freedom of Information Task Force for the Society of Environmental Journalists. I'm thrilled to share this interview with you today, but before that, we're going to check in with the fine folks at the Rodale Institute. Welcome to a monthly segment we're calling Transition Land. It's a collaboration with the Rodale Institute, and we're focusing on helping conventional farmers transition to regenerative organic practices. On this episode, Christy Wendelberger joins us to go deeper into the soil nourishing benefits of cover crops. Welcome back, Christy. Thank you. It's always great to be here. So we've been talking a lot these days about cover crops and keeping roots in the ground. And I think we have this idea that plants take, 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 you know, they absorb water, minerals, but they also give back. There's this real give and take between plants and soil. Talk a little bit about how that works. Well, it, there is a, a very big give back um, that plants, they they aren't just, if you think about a forest, you know, a forest is a system that is constantly turning over, but yet it continues. So they have to be giving something if that soil is going to continue supporting other plants. And so it's the same concept when you're farming. The, the more diverse you make your field, uh, the more... Um, the more that those plants can give back in different ways. So one of the things that plants really can do for the soil itself and just kind of the structure of the soil is really help with compaction. Um, as the cut with a cover crop, you generally plant it denser than you would most of your cash crops. And so the, the roots themselves will become more dense than the cash crops. And so those roots still penetrate into the soil and they can penetrate into deeper, um, more compact zones than a, a regular cash crop would, um, often they can do that. So they'll penetrate the soil and go deeper and really kind of just break it up. And as they're doing that, they're creating these very small tunnels throughout the whole soil structure. So this is kind of nature's way of plowing. Exactly. It is exactly nature's way of plowing. And so they're creating these tunnels and one, there's lots of things that happen within these tunnels. And one of the tunnels is one of the things that happens is it's just less compact soil. And we all know that when you put, when you put plants into less compact soil, they, they can put their roots out easier and it makes the cash crop be able to grow bigger and stronger and then hopefully have better yields. Um, but it also, those pathways ways that the roots produce after the cover crop has been terminated and the roots die off, it leaves these little tunnels and that helps with infiltration as well. So water can then penetrate into the soil faster and deeper than it would be able to if it didn't have these cover crops. It's not uncommon to see places where there's good cover crop management and 
and the there's a big rainstorm and there's no flooding but then the farm right next door doesn't use cover crops and there's a big rainstorm and there's flooding so one of the one of the variables there is the fact that it's it's helping with the infiltration in the soil and it's not just about creating better soil structure it's also about using this process of photosynthesis to feed simple sugars into the soil or exudates as it would be another way of saying it. Talk a little bit about how that works and how important that is to soil health. Yeah, it, exactly. Um, it, soil health, one of the things that makes a really healthy soil is having a healthy microbiome. So you want to have a lot of microbial community, a, a big microbial community in the soil. You want there to be um, a lot of bacteria, a lot of mycorrhizae, which is a fungus. You want um, you, you just want a lot of diversity in terms of the microbial community. In order to get that, they need, just like anything else, they also need nutrients. So when photosynthesis happens, the, you know, the plants pull carbon dioxide out of, and, and add in oxygen, um, excuse me, carbon dioxide and water into the plants. They use light and then they make nutrients for themselves, but also those nutrients go down into the roots and some of them are exuded um, as amino acids, as uh, organic acids, as other nutrients that, that can be used by these microorganisms. And an example is these exudates can, they, they can um, stimulate that process of rhizobia coming into the roots and producing nodules that people know of in for nitrogen fixing plants like legumes. Um, mycorrhizae that come into the plant and, and a lot of times mycorrhizae will will infiltrate the plant and then they are very tiny, tinier than the roots themselves. So they can penetrate even deeper into the soil and pull up more nutrients and more water for the plant. So the plants give the mycorrhizae nutrients and the new mycorrhizae give that back by giving them some nutrients. Um, and so having that, that structure in the ground so that you can promote this microbial community is really important. And what are some of the strategies that farmers are using in terms of cover cropping that is aimed toward creating certain soil conditions? You know, do you see uh, farmers using cover crops in a very diverse way? Uh, you know, what, what are the tactics that they're, that they're using? What are the go-to cover crops? Yeah, I think um, instead of getting into kind of the, the the details of each species they're using, I, I think yeah. you can think of it more on an e ecological perspective. So when you have more diversity, you tend to have healthier, healthier habitats. And so it's the same thing in terms of root structure, uh, different plants create different root structures. So some plants have a taproot, you know, like daikon radishes, they have a taproot that goes straight down. Some plants have um, more fibrous roots, like maybe a cereal rye and their, their roots go, they, they go wider and shallower than, than maybe the daikon radish would. Um, some, and then some kind of do a little bit of both where they go deep, but also wide. Um, and so, really picking a, a lot what a lot of farmers are doing now is picking a diverse community of cover crops so it's not just one cover crop but they'll have two or three or or six different cover crops depending on what they're looking to do if they have very compact soil they may have more cover crops if they have or more diverse cover crops to to get those different soil roots penetrating at different levels and in different ways. Um, and so having the di a diversity in cover crops will help with the compaction because your root system is so, so much more diverse and help with the infiltration and also create just more of those tunnels that, um, you know, is again, the infiltration and the compaction, but in those tunnels is also where those exudates are given off. And so those tunnels will have more oxygen than the surrounding soil, and they'll have more nutrients in them from the exudates. So those tunnels are habitats for microbial, for the microbial community, and they will get, 
you know, basically they just become these little, it's an underground homes for the microbial community. And so the more diversity you have, you tend to produce more habitat for the microbes. Can you think of a case study that illustrates what you're talking about? In other words, maybe a Rodale Institute project or a farmer project that you're aware of where they did a, a certain mix of cover crops with a particular result in mind? Well, um, I, I mean, at, here at the Southeast Organic Center, we have a project going on right now that is that we don't have results for yet, but we are, that is what the purpose to the project is. And so in a collaboration with Clemson University, we have a USDA organic transitions funded project. And Clemson has the same project that they're doing on their property in the coastal plain. So it's more sandy down there. And we have our project that we're doing in the Piedmont. So we're gonna be able to compare what's happening in the coastal plain versus what's happening in the Piedmont soils. And we're looking at hair vetch and cereal rye and then just putting chicken manure down and then all the combinations of those three so hairy vetch and cereal rye cereal rye and hairy vetch and chicken manure you know all those combinations and the impact of different um, of conventional tillage where you just disc in these cover crops versus versus just rolling it like we we mm -hmm. talk about a lot at Rodale using a roller crimper and then just rolling it and doing no-till. And so the idea is we've collected soil samples from zero centimeters down to 60 centimeters, stratified them every 15 centimeters. And then we're looking at how those different cover crops are impacting the nutrients and the microbial community and um, compaction and infiltration and bulk density of both our property as well as at Clemson. So, you know, this is this is the type of research and the type of stuff that farmers do all the time. They're just not doing it with this, you know, stratified block, split block design that's perfect. But, you know, it's just taking your soils and the different soils that you're farming on and putting down different different combinations and seeing what helps you the most. And we're going to be able to quantify it, which um, most farmers would quantify that based on yield, but we'll be able to also quantify that based on, on what microbial, the microbial community is doing and, and the nutrient levels in the soil are. You know, the dream within organic regenerative agriculture is to create closed systems that can really uh, cycle fertility for long periods of time. Uh, it's kind of the perpetual motion machine of, of agriculture. But I guess my question is, how far can you push cover crops in reducing outside inputs that you're bringing onto your farm? The reality is it depends. It depends on where your soil is at in the in the moment when you're starting. You know, wh where are you starting this? Um, are they super depleted or are they already in pretty good shape and you just want to keep them in good shape? Um, if they're super depleted, uh, you can do a lot for improving the, for decreasing the amount of inputs you put into the soil. Um, if they're already in really good shape, uh, you can do a lot to maintain that and keep them in good shape using cover crops. Um, some There's still research that's being done um, on how, for example, corn, how to, corn is, is, it takes nitrogen heavy twice during the year, during its growth period. So, you know, how do you use cover crops to be able to reduce the amount of, of nutrients that you have to put in? So some people are even interseeding cover crops into the corn. So they grow the corn, grow it about a foot tall, and then interseed it with something else um, that may be a legume, something that in it'll grow. And then as the corn grows and shades it out, it's going to start providing nutrients to the soil. So there's there, again, it just, it depends on where you're, where you start, what your objective is and what you're growing will depend on if you can go to completely nothing. Uh, you know, the idea is to try to figure out a way to do it where there is no, no inputs are needed other than, you know, maybe compost or something that is um, simple and organic. Thanks so much for joining us today, Christy. 
All right. Thank you. Christine Wendelberger is the research director for the Rodale Institute Southeast Organic Center in Chattahoochee Hills, Georgia. She's responsible for expanding organic farming practices throughout the Southeast through research, outreach, and education. Learn more about the Rodale Institute at rodaleinstitute.org. I want to take this moment to introduce our sponsor, Barn to Door. They're doing a new segment aimed at helping farmers, and you'll hear that later in this episode. But who are they? Barn to Door powers farmers who sell direct, helping them increase sales, access customers, and save time. They help farmers meet buyers' expectations through easy ordering and an accessible brand across online channels. Farmers use software, services, and resources from Barn to Door to manage and promote their business. The bottom line is this, farms that provide convenient buying and delivery options reach more buyers. Data show farmers can double revenue when they offer online subscriptions and direct delivery. Promote your brand, manage your orders, and keep your profits with Barn to Door, providing the capabilities and support you need to build a thriving farm direct business. Learn more at barntodoor.com forward slash tractor time. We're really happy to have Carrie Gillum back on the podcast. The work she's doing right now is invaluable and, dare I say, brave. When we think of investigative journalists, we might think about Woodward and Bernstein. We might think about the Washington Post or the New York Times. But increasingly, if you want to find journalism that holds powerful corporations and governments accountable, you have to look beyond mainstream sources. As I mentioned earlier, Carrie does a lot of work for U.S. Right to Know. It's a nonprofit news site that you should check out and consider supporting if you value independent journalism. If you're interested in hearing more, listen through to the end of the interview when Carrie and I talk about the mission of U.S. Right to Know. The main focus of this interview, however, is the landmark lawsuits taking Monsanto to the task over the disturbing health effects of its best-selling herbicide, Roundup. Carrie's new book tells the harrowing story of Lee Johnson, a school district groundskeeper with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma who won a historic $280 million judgment against Monsanto in 2018. The book is part legal thriller and part battle cry for environmental justice. I hope you find this interview as illuminating and galvanizing as I did. Hello, Carrie. Welcome back. Hello. Thanks for having me. Monsanto has a long, long history that stretches back over 100 years. How did a small Missouri-based saccharin company turn into this global behemoth worth billions? Yeah, they, they were started in 1901, you know, by this guy named John Queenie, named the company after his wife. Uh, you know, that was her, Monsanto was her maiden name. Um, they started as a maker of this artificial sweetener, and then they expanded into sort of an industrial, you know, chemical supplier and got involved in a whole array of different chemicals and PCBs and uh, DDT. Monsanto was uh, one of the companies that was uh, helping the government uh, as a supplier of Agent Orange, you know, which was used in the Vietnam War as a defoliant. Uh, by our troops uh, to try to keep the, you know, the enemy from hiding in, in lush overgrowth. So the company, though, after, you know, after the war, like many other chemical companies at that time, they were looking for, you know, what is our next big market? What do we do next? And, and agriculture was really, you know, the, uh, the new in the new frontier for these chemical companies and the products that they had been pushing for uh, you know, industrial use and for use in wartime could be uh, repurposed, so to speak, uh, for use by farmers. And uh, glyphosate, Monsanto was looking you know, for what to do with different chemicals and how to really break into this market. And uh, they, were, they had a scientist who was looking at this chemical called glyphosate that uh, really nobody had looked at it before as a weed killer. It had actually changed hands a few times uh, with people, different companies unable to determine, you know, something that would be profitable to do with it. And their scientists found out that it made a heck of a weed killer. And uh, he actually, you know, came to win several awards for this. And, um, you know, glyphosate was, was a remarkable new find um, because it killed weeds so effectively, efficiently, a whole array of different types of weeds. It was considered so much more effective and so much safer than other weed killers that farmers had been you know, dabbling with or using for years before glyphosate came on the market. And, and this really pushed Monsanto to, to prominence, this glyphosate product that 
most people know as Roundup. Glyphosate herbicides have, you know, come in hundreds of different brand names now, but Roundup is probably the one that, that is best known. And uh, they brought this to market in the 1970s and really haven't looked back, you know, since this evolved into a multi-billion dollar product. Uh, Monsanto introduced genetically engineered crops, of course, to tolerate the use of these glyphosate herbicides and uh, grew to be about a $15 billion in revenue company, uh, selling these, these genetically altered seeds and uh, Roundup herbicides. And then of course they were purchased by the big German company Bayer in 2018 and uh, live on uh, as a unit uh, of Bayer now. And how long have you been covering Monsanto? How did they first come on to your radar as a journalist? Well, I started covering Monsanto in 1998, which sounds like a really, really long time ago. Feels like a long time ago, too, I suppose. Uh, I was a banking reporter living in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, working for a company called Thompson Financial. Uh, Thompson actually eventually acquired Reuters. um, But before they did, uh, I was working for Thompson, uh, as I said, writing about very big banking companies. And Reuters uh, lured me away and asked me to move to Kansas and start writing about uh, this really cool company that had just introduced genetically engineered seeds. This was again, you know, 1998. And uh, so it was my job to come to Kansas and start learning everything I could about food and farming and, you know, what agriculture meant as an industry, you know, both to sort of U.S. trade and the U.S. economy, as well as to our own health and environmental health covered commodity trading uh, as well to understand, you know, the cash and the futures markets and really spent, gosh, I mean, lots and lots of time. I really have been through hundreds and hundreds of farm fields and met farmers all across the country learning about their business. I spent time, a lot of time in Monsanto headquarters in the St. Louis area and down DuPont and Syngenta and BASF and all those players who were becoming big in seeds and chemicals for farming, uh, because I worked for Reuters, wanted to woo me, wanted to bring me into their offices and teach me the business from their perspective. So, you know, it really was a great education. uh, And, you know, it's all I've done ever since, uh, really, is is cover this industry. Right. And and you wrote a book about it called Whitewash. Um, It was highly regarded, award-winning. And, you know, the new book that we're discussing today, the Monsanto Papers, takes a very different approach. Uh, Could you give us a brief description of whitewash and what the sort of approach there was? Yeah, whitewash um, surprised me as well. I think I had been working for Reuters, you know, for all these years, writing about agriculture and food and farming. And as I learned more, both from the companies and from outside experts, academics, weed scientists, soil scientists, farmers, uh, you know, grain handlers. I mean, I really uh, explored the whole gamut uh, to try to understand this industry. I, I came to see really clearly that uh, there were some really important issues that were being hidden. You know, the truth was not necessarily being told about uh, the dangers of glyphosate uh, in particular, and primarily because it was pushed to such widespread use by Monsanto and and through this avenue of genetically engineered crop technology. Uh, Glyphosate use exploded during the time I was covering it, Um, you know, grew to become the world's most widely used weed killer. And and scientists were looking at this and finding that it was becoming ubiquitous. It was being found in air samples and rainfall and, you know, uh, groundwater, drinking water in, in a whole array of foods that we were consuming. And they were very concerned about what it was doing to our health. Um, they were seeing impacts on pollinators and, and uh, other elements of wildlife uh, that were harmful. You know, but all of that was, was really being hidden um, by, by Monsanto and the other companies in the industry. And so this book, Whitewash, really just laid that all out. It didn't, didn't say glyphosate should be banned by any means, but it said there's a lot of science that shows that this heavy use of this chemical is really bad for our environment and for our health, that perhaps we need a more balanced, uh, you know, risk assessment and uh, risk reward analysis. Um, and I, I guess the book to me 
it, it looks at the science, it looks at you know the impact on the food industry, it looks at uh, the relationship between the company and the EPA, and it looks at a lot of people who were getting cancer that was associated with their exposure to this chemical. So the book was described as an expose. It did win three awards. It uh, you know had me invited to speak all over the world about the findings. But it was it was pretty much a you know a heavy read, I think. Yeah. <laughs> um, a lot of science in that book. The new book is quite different, I think. It is different, and it's it's you know it's a it's kind of a thriller. It's a it's a legal thriller, and it's also kind of a David and Goliath story. And you know, obviously, Monsanto is the Goliath in this latest book. But who is the David in the story? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I guess the most obvious character as a David is is Lee Johnson. This man. Uh, who we follow through the book. Um, he's just a you know middle-aged guy, kind of your average Joe. He hasn't had the easiest life. Uh, he's in his 40s. He's got two young kids and a wife, and he works as a school groundskeeper uh, for the Benicia California School District. And part of his job is to spray uh, the grounds to to treat weeds, you know, to try to keep them free of weeds and unwanted vegetation. And he uses these Monsanto products to do that. And he's using them in large quantities. And I just, I really wanted this to be a human story. I wanted people to understand his experience. Uh, And so I spent a lot of time with him and, you know, you start out with him in his apartment and, you know, getting ready to go to work and, and that sort of thing. So uh, he very clearly is the David. He comes to develop a form of non-Hodgkin lymphoma that is designated to be terminal. The doctors tell him he's got less than two years to live, which is devastating news, obviously, to the father of two young boys, as it would be to anybody. And how he then sort of connects with this team of really sort of eclectic, uh, and I found, I found them very sort of oddly interesting mm-hmm. lawyers uh, who also are the Davids uh, to a certain extent in yeah. the story. And, and, you know, Lee was, as a groundskeeper, was really careful with how he used Roundup, even though it was marketed as being the safest weed killer out there. Lee was really wary of using it. And yet at the same time, he had these, these accidents um, and, and in very short order, he started having really serious health problems that is, just, it's really heartrending to read about. Yeah. I mean, to, to understand what Lee has been going through is just, it, it was heartbreaking to, to report this story, to spend so much time with him, to see how he has been suffering, uh, was, was just really a pull on my heart. And I wanted readers to understand that because I think much as glyphosate or Roundup represents a problem we have with pesticide use in this country, I think Lee's story represents what a lot of far too many people are suffering, you know, in terms of cancer. We have close to 40% of uh, people living in the U.S. Who are, who are cancer society tells us are expected to get cancer in their lifetimes. 40% of, of men and women are expected to get cancer in their lifetimes. And that's it's just not the way it should be, I don't think. But um, Lee Lee's story, I hope, resonates with people and is is a powerful tale of how one person, you know, has has uh, followed that journey and tried to fight back against both cancer and the company that he blamed for causing his cancer. Yeah, and you know, Lee isn't the only plaintiff to take on Monsanto. I mean, there are thousands who have similar stories and you know what do they all have in common yeah and you're right i mean there are over a hundred thousand people in the u.s who have sued monsanto uh, and they all allege that they developed non-hodgkin lymphoma uh, because of their exposure to monsanto's glyphosate herbicides roundup or ranger pro or other uh, names brand names so that is the commonality of course there are many different types of non-Hodgkin lymphoma. And these people all had different usage patterns and different experiences. And, um, you know, some used it in their jobs and like Lee, and then others used it around their properties, their homes or things like that. And many, many of the plaintiffs in the litigation have died uh, and their cases are being carried on by, you know, family members or spouses, things like that, children. You know, it is, it is very widespread. It's one of the largest mass torts in the United States. 
And many people, I guess if you follow this, would know that the bear, which again bought Monsanto in 2018, has uh, been trying to settle the cases. They lost uh, Lee's trial and two other trials, three of three that have been held so far. They lost all three and they have been trying desperately to settle these cases and uh, of course, make them go away. A World Health Organization body in, I think, 2015 declared that glyphosate is a probable carcinogen, and that was a big milestone, but it really just set off this huge whirlwind. I mean, it was controversial because Monsanto disagreed with it, but also because it set the stage for this litigation that you're describing. Talk about why the WHO did that and what they were saying about glyphosate's potential impact on human health? Yeah, so the World Health Organization uh, has this agency or this unit called the International Agency for Research on Cancer, IARC, we call it IARC. And uh, what IARC does is essentially look at, you know, commonly used substances, things that people are exposed to a lot. And it's their job to look at the science, the literature that is out there, published peer-reviewed evidence, and review it and see if there's a cancer risk associated, if there's a hazard, if this could potentially cause cancer. And then they're, and they, they're not a regulator, but their information then can be used and is, is respected and regarded and looked to by regulators all over the world. Um, you know, state regulators as well as federal regulators. And they've always been considered really sort of the gold standard. Um, the members who come together to review literature on the substance are independent scientists. They, they are specialists in cancer science um, and are again, considered some of you know, the most highly regarded cancer scientists around the world. So in 2014, they were looking, you know, what are we going to review next? And glyphosate uh, was suggested to them because of the widespread use and because there had been a number of studies published over the last several years showing, you know, gosh, this looks like it might cause cancer. There's some genotoxicity concerns. Um, there are all these different studies that are coming together, looking at uh, both toxicology and animal studies and some epidemiology uh, and, and even some, you know, in the laboratory cellular tests that show this could cause cancer. So we should look at it. And they did. And they determined in March of 2015, they issued a statement showing that they had classified it based on their review of all these published peer-reviewed studies, that it was a probable human carcinogen. And there was an, a positive, particularly positive association for non-Hodgkin lymphoma. Uh, they also found or said that this, the literature showed that heavy use of Roundup could be linked to other things like infertility, kidney disease, other cancers. And they, I, you know, I talked to many of these scientists, they didn't really think this was a big deal. I mean, they do this kind of all the time. They issue these classifications and, you know, the nerds out in the world take note, right. And pay attention, but really no one else does usually, but, you know, this exploded in their faces really, um, because Monsanto, we saw from internal documents that came out through the litigation was preparing an attack plan before the group even issued their, their final decision. Monsanto talked internally about they knew that this group probably would find that there was a cancer connection. They said we should prepare for a possible or probable carcinogen rating. And what are we going to do about it? And we're going to create an uh, outcry against this group. And they had a spreadsheet and a whole long plan put together about how they could attack and harass and discredit these group of scientists. And they implemented that immediately after this announcement by this group. Um, I don't think I'm the first to point out that the new book reads a lot like a John Grisham thriller. It's a really revealing look at civil litigation, but unlike a Grisham novel, there isn't just a, like a lone hero standing up against the odds. Um, these plaintiff's attorneys are really an imposing cast of characters or like this super group of lawyers, like they're like the Avengers, but they definitely took notice of this WHO announcement and started building cases. Talk, talk a little bit about that. How, how these, this litigation came to be, what were these lawyers taking notice of? Yeah. So you're right. I mean, Mike Miller uh, was really sort of one of the first, if not the first 
and uh, he's a good old guy living in Virginia, you know, had been a lawyer forever, 40 some years. And, uh, you know, was sort of nearing retirement, but really having a hard time letting it go. And uh, he had made his millions um, really in pharmaceutical work uh, and uh, holding holding accountable in through the courts companies that made, you know, defective uh, medical devices or peddled uh, pills and products that turned out to be quite harmful to people. Uh, so that was his specialty. So he knew that there was real importance in sort of keeping an eye on what these scientists um, with the World Health Organization said, because they would review all of this literature. Of course, a lawyer didn't have time to do that. But so his, his team, he and his team saw that this announcement come down and immediately started thinking we need to dig into this because gosh, this is such a widely used product and so many people, you know, residential users uh, look at this as well as farmers and others. So they started doing work and came to determine that there was enough uh, there that maybe they should, should try to take Monsanto to court. And they'd never filed a suit against a pesticide company. They didn't really know what they were facing with Monsanto. They came to realize uh, that this was, uh, you know, a, a foe uh, with, with strength and power and tactics that they had not really experienced before. But they, they then were, were the first to file, file litigation against Monsanto and to begin discovery, uh, which is, you know, this obtaining of these internal Monsanto documents as part of evidence gathering. And, and the way that they put together these cases is, is really fascinating. I mean, they, they're not just taking in anyone who potentially has been impacted by Roundup or glyphosate. They frame their, the case very specifically around a certain criteria. Can you talk a little bit about that and how that played out? Yeah. I mean, they, they wanted to be, to be very specific. They, from the outset, you know, they wanted to have case cases that, you know, would, would hold up and they didn't want to get distracted. They didn't want to be filing cases for people who had, you know, things that they couldn't, um, that there wasn't robust scientific evidence to support. Um, because of course there are, you know, a lot of different things mentioned in literature and, and like IARC talked about, you know, there or infertility or kidney disease or those sorts of things. But the strongest evidence really was around this non-Hodgkin lymphoma. And so that's what they limited it to. And they really wanted to make sure that they were only taking in plaintiffs, you know, who, who didn't have a lot of exposure to other sorts of chemicals or other sorts of risk factors um, in their background. You know, they really wanted um, cases that they considered to be solid. And the thing that I learned about all this, you're right, like I became fascinated by the legal strategies and, and the, the, the way that these lawyers had to put these cases together and the hills that they climb and the strategies that they employ and some of the sort of, I don't want to say sneaky because it's not sneaky, I guess it's strategic, but it's, it's not just as clean and easy as uh, maybe you think if you're, you know, you watch Law and Order or something like that, I mean, right. you know, um, so I became fascinated by the legal process. And I tried to share that with the readers in this book, sort of the ins and outs and the good, the bad, the ugly of how the, the legal sausage gets made, I guess. We're going to hit pause on this interview for a brief segment from our sponsor, Barn to Door. Hey, this is Sebastian from Barn to Door. In this week's Farmer Spotlight, we have Amy and Will from Old Ridge Valley Farm in Smith County, Virginia. We asked them what their experience has been like using Barn to Door to sell directly to their customers. Here's what they had to say. We live in a, in a pretty rural part of the country. We're, we're in, out here in, in the middle of nowhere, really. And so we, we have the ability to produce a lot of food, but there's not all that many people around. So I guess from our end, if we're going to produce food, it's all for nothing if you don't have somebody to get it to. And so the online has really gave us an, an opportunity to reach people that we couldn't have otherwise. So we're, we're kind of thankful for yeah, the technology and born to door, you know, for being able to, to kind of link us to customers because without that, we'd be in trouble. The ordering through Born to Door and especially the subscriptions is just been such a blessing. And that is something that we definitely could not have done without Born to Door, without the online 
store because it is just so easy for the customers to go in there and they can choose which subscription they want. They choose their pickup location or their delivery drop and then their payments go through automatically so they really don't have to think about it or worry about it for a year and then I get the list printed out of who needs what every month and it just makes it a whole lot simpler and like we said before the orders were coming in through Facebook and emails and texts and calls and they were just coming in everywhere and so it was just really hard to keep up with. If you'd like to hear more from Amy and Will you can go to barntodor.com slash tractor time. Thanks for listening. And you write in the book that some some people see these attorneys as predatory. Um, you know, I think in one case, these attorneys refer to their clients as inventory, or maybe it's their cases that they refer to as inventory. And and many of them get very rich, um, as you mentioned, taking on these larger companies. And yet, I guess my question is, what is the alternative? Um, government regulators appear hesitant, h- hamstrung to do their job. What's going on here? What does it say about our regulatory system? That's a great point. And I did come to understand um, a lot that there are a lot of layers to that. And I think this whole plaintiff's bar gets painted often with this broad brush by critics as sort of predatory ambulance chasers, exploitive. And what I found is that within the plaintiff's bar within, and you may refer to them as personal injury attorneys, that sort of thing, class action plaintiff's bar, Uh, there are different degrees. And so many of the lawyers who were involved in leading the roundup litigation look upon with great scorn other plaintiff's attorneys that they consider to be predatory. So there are lawyers who, like the Miller firm, who come together and with maybe two or three other firms to lead this sort of litigation and literally have to write checks, you know, for millions and millions of dollars to pay for the document discovery, analysis of that, um, expert witnesses, depositions, years of pretrial work before they ever even you know, get to present a case to the jury. They have millions of dollars on the line. A lot of them are mortgaging their homes or property or taking out loans or bringing in investors or that sort of thing. And of course, if they lose, they lose big. You know, They don't get paid by the clients. They only get paid. I mean, they do if they win, but uh, right. but this is, um, not something that, uh, you know, is for the faint of heart, I suppose. And then there are a number of attorneys and law firms who sort of take in inventory, take in their clients, and then just sort of sit on that inventory until there is a settlement. And then, you know, we'll stick their uh, hand out and say, okay, we're ready for our settlement dollars now. So, you know, there's a lot of that going on, but to your point, and the point I make in the book is, without regulators that are going to do their jobs and hold these companies to account and be more engaged in protecting public health, uh, we really don't have any other system. And you've seen this time and time again in, you know, whether it be, you know, malfunctioning airbags or, you know, opioid uh, issues or medical devices uh, or Roundup, you know, without these lawyers to bring everybody into court and to lay the evidence out for all to see, uh, these companies, you know, are never really held to account. Well, specifically, how has the EPA performed as a regulator when it comes to something like Roundup? The EPA has been astonishing in its uh, collusion is probably the word that works the best here uh, with, with Monsanto, uh, the EPA, you know, we have a memo. I, there's a memo that came out again through discovery, uh, that, that talks about, that says the white house has Monsanto's back on glyphosate. (laughs) You will not see strict regulation on glyphosate. Uh, you know, there are many, many, many examples that date back, you know, to the 1980s that, I have found in EPA archives that have come out through freedom of information documents that have come out through litigation uh, that show time and time and time again, EPA works with, closely aligns with these companies that they regulate, Monsanto in particular, but also many, many others, Dow, DuPont, Syngenta, align their interests with the company's interests and put public protection uh, of health of the environment, you know, second or third. And it's 
it's incredibly uh, troubling and frustrating when you when you read about that. You know, there's a great example in in the book about this ATSDR review, this government agency that's part of Health and Human Services that wanted to do a look at glyphosate toxicity there were, because of all the evidence that this might be causing cancer and how Monsanto emailed EPA officials. I think I couldn't believe reading these emails. Monsanto e emails the top guys at the Office of Pesticide uh, Programs in EPA looking for a little assistance because they really do not want this separate agency to do a review. And within, I think it was two hours, these top officials are emailing uh, and they are on it and they are going to help Monsanto. And there are text messages back and forth. Uh, and lo and behold, they step in and they help Monsanto and Monsanto gets the, the roadblock that they were looking for on this, uh, this separate review. As a result of the many, many lawsuits against Monsanto, an enormous trove of internal documents has come to light. What do they reveal? They revealed the example I just gave you about uh, that ATSDR review that, that got roadblocked. They review uh, many aspects of uh, reaching out to the EPA for either um, assistance in protecting and defending glyphosate or sometimes telling EPA what to do. For instance, you know, there was a, a document uh, that came out that showed that when uh, the World Health Organization's cancer experts were announcing their findings that glyphosate was a probable human carcinogen, Monsanto was sending the EPA uh, its list of talking points. So the company was sending talking points to the EPA. <laughs> you know, there, there's ghostwriting that came out, a lot of documents that talk about ghostwriting um, papers that would be published in the scientific literature. And that would be the ghostwriting was Monsanto, the words of Monsanto's own scientists, but the idea was that these papers would look like they were written by people who were not affiliated with Monsanto, and they would proclaim the safety of glyphosate products, but Monsanto would actually be behind them. And there were many examples of that with glyphosate as well as with other products that Monsanto was peddling. Right. And it's really astonishing to read about that particular action that they were taking behind the scenes, ghostwriting these papers and getting outside scientists to sign their names to it, to lend credibility, and then getting it published in scientific journals. And, you know, during this pandemic, when I, whenever I'd hear people say, listen to the science, let the science speak, I, I think about your work on Monsanto. In fact, one of Monsanto's attorneys uh, tells a jury at one point, the scientific evidence is overwhelming that glyphosate-based products do not cause cancer. It did not cause Lee Johnson's cancer. It's the science that's going to answer that question for you. What has covering this company and industrial agriculture in general taught you about how science often works within a world dominated by corporate power? Yeah, I mean, what, what I've learned and had my eyes open to, and is, I guess, no secret to many other people who've studied this perhaps far longer than I have, but is that, yeah, their corporate influence in science um, is a factor uh, in many products that are out on the market right now and that have been on the market for a long, long time. Uh, when you talk about let's follow the science, you have to say, okay, well, who's science though? <laughs> I mean, are we talking about independent science that has been you know, reviewed by peers and uh, you know, adheres to international standards for you know, scientific research? Or are we talking about scientific research that has been funded by and designed by these companies that are selling the products? And quite often, the science that we're being told that we should follow and we should believe, of course, is the science that was generated by the company selling the products. And why in the world people would think that, uh, you know, this company that has billions of dollars at stake is going to be completely unbiased in the studies and the research that it presents. Um, and they're gonna be more unbiased than this independent academic, you know, toiling away in a university, you know, in Italy or something It is beyond me. I mean, it just, it defies reason to think that the company science is going to be unbiased. And, you know, one really frustrating, incredible example that came out through the internal documents was this study that was published in the year 2000 that sort of became the platform uh, that Monsanto used and gave to regulators around the world to show that 
you know, not only did glyphosate and Roundup not cause cancer, but it, it didn't cause any reproductive problems. It, it, there was nothing at all to fear in Roundup, according to this study. And what you see in the internal documents is this whole long conversation back and forth between scientists in Monsanto about how hard they worked on that independent paper, how much time they spent, the years, they spent three years working to craft this paper. Uh, and they talk about how it's gonna be so great because it's going to help them defend glyphosate around the world because it's an independent paper. They appear not to even understand the hypocrisy in their own words. Um, when they talk about all the time and work that they've done on an independent paper. Uh, and they're building up public relations PR to help tout this paper and market this so-called independent paper. Uh, and they even talk about, they've done so much work there. They've got eight scientists that really worked really hard on um, some papers and they're going to print up some Roundup logo polo shirts to give to these people as a token of appreciation. Well, is there a happy ending here? Is Monsanto going to change its practices as a result of these trials, as a result of continuing scientific inquiry, or is this just going to be tied up in appeals for the foreseeable future and they're just going to continue to sell Roundup? Well, you know, it's really interesting. Um, just yesterday, just on uh, May 27th, Bear issued a statement saying, you know what, we think maybe we need to change our minds and maybe they're hinting now that they may remove uh, Roundup products from the market in the US for residential use, for lawn and garden use. Um, they didn't say definitively that they would do that, but they seem to be leaning in that direction because they have uh, continued to fail at um, coming up with a plan to head off future Roundup litigation. Even if they settle all the cases that are pending now, the company recognizes there's nothing to stop people from suing them in the future because people are going to continue to get non-Hodgkin lymphoma after using these Roundup products and continue to sue. So the most obvious answer that they have and the judge in the federal uh, litigation has said this to them, said this recently uh, this month as well, why don't you just put a warning label? put a warning label that says that this potentially could cause cancer, that IARC has said it's a probable human carcinogen, and then you're covered, you know, or at least it's going to make it a lot harder for people to say uh, that you didn't warn them because you have warned them. Uh, so Bear is now starting to say, you know, we might put something on the label. We're going to look at that. We might pull this from the residential use market. Uh, they really are in defensive mode but they have no intention, they say, of, of pulling it from the agricultural market. What about the plaintiffs? Have they seen justice? Has Lee Johnson seen any justice? Well, you know, from Lee's perspective, uh, he's, he's still dying of cancer. He has outlived his terminal diagnosis um, by a couple of years now, which is a remarkable thing when you see him and you see just what he's been going through. Uh, and he did finally get paid a little bit of money, <laughs> not nearly the amount that the jury awarded him. Which was what, like 250 million? The jury in his trial awarded him $289 million. Uh, 250 million of that was impunitive damages. The trial court reduced that and the appellate court reduced it further. Uh, there was an interesting twist. The appellate court uh, pointed out that because Lee Johnson was expected to die very soon, he was not entitled to as much money as the jury wanted him to have. Um, because under California law, if you are not going to be living a long time with your suffering, uh, then you need less money, of course, um, to pay for you know, medication and, and treatment and that sort of thing. So because he was expected to die so soon, his, his award was, was trimmed way down his ultimate uh, amount that he was owed was $20.5 million. I mean, he has, he has uh, a family, right? I mean, he has children. He has a wife and two children. Yeah. And uh, he's, he, as I said, he's still hanging in there. He was also dis repulsed, I guess, or upset by the, the reduction um, because after it, he doesn't, 20 isn't what he netted, you know, he then had to pay lawyers fees and, and, all sorts of things that come out of that before his final amount. And there have been other plaintiffs uh, who have received money so far, 
uh, as well, but there are many, many who have not and who, as I said earlier, who have died awaiting for either their day in court or some sort of settlement. So this continues and there looks to be maybe more trials that uh, are coming. There are more trials uh, on the schedule. Uh, whether or not they will actually happen is, is still yet to be seen. The federal judge overseeing the uh, litigation, um, Vince Shabria, you know, has been pretty harsh against against Monsanto recently and and Bear and said that you know they definitely he can see very clearly that they definitely don't want to go to trial and they definitely want to settle because you know every time they get into trial they lose. Well, as far as scientific evidence, where are we today? I know you've you've done stories somewhat recently about sort of new. Uh, scientific work being done to study the health effects of Roundup of glyphosate. You know, where where are we at right now? What do we know? There are many studies that are coming out. There there have been more um, coming out looking at sort of the endocrine disrupting question and if glyphosate indeed can be considered an endocrine disruptor, which is a very you know troubling um, issue if indeed it is because it is so widely used. Uh, these EDCs, these endocrine disrupting chemicals interfere, of course, with the hormones in the body and interfere then, of course, with reproductive health and can, can contribute to infertility and birth defects and uh, a whole array of problems. And sadly, you know, we have far too many of those out on the market. Chlorpyrifos is one, of course, that we can talk about that the EPA has so staunchly defended uh, despite all of the evidence. Uh, that it is very damaging to children's brains and it's disruptive to endocrine, uh, the endocrine system. DDT, again, was another one of those. We're still finding uh, the impacts of DDT in, in people. Um, but, you know, the EPA so far has, has uh, not done its EDC screening on glyphosate as it was supposed to have done years ago. So you have many independent scientists saying that the evidence is mounting, uh, that it does mess with the endocrine system, but it's far from a consensus at this point, I would say. You've been covering the story for so long, and I'm sure it's taken a toll on you in some way. What keeps you motivated? What keeps you going? Well, I, I do think, you know, um, I'm a bit tired of the Monsanto saga. <laughs> I wrote this latest book, the Monsanto Papers, though, um, because I did find the trial and, and the revelations that came out and just Lee Johnson's story and, and the deep dive into the legal uh, world, just so compelling. I just had to write the book. I just, you know, I thought this is going to make a great movie one day. <laughs> Hopefully it'll make a great book. So, um, but, you know, I'm looking at what we are doing to our world. And every time I put together a presentation and I pull the latest data, looking at you know childhood cancers or different diseases that we're seeing or reproductive health or what's going on with our insects and our bird population, what's happening to our water quality, uh, you know, it's it's a terrible story. And and it's a really frighteningly sad world we're leaving for our kids. And I have three kids and I I really hope that they get to have kids and that their kids get to have kids. And if you look at the data uh, right now, it doesn't look very hopeful for them, for their future, to have a future with good health. Um, it looks like a future with suffering and, and a lot of you know blame for the prior generations. And that's us. And so yeah. I hope that we can see the light and you know come together to bring a healthier world for our kids and farmers have a big role in doing that i mean you know farmers feed us all and that's a super important job and we're grateful that for them forever but you know let's let's also ask our farmers to be thinking about our future generations and and what they can do and maybe practices that they can adopt that'll help make it a healthier future before we say goodbye i wanted to give you a chance to talk about the organization you work with, um, U.S. Right to Know, um, I I read that site every day. But I, I think people, more people, need to know about it. Well, thank you for <laughs> reading it every day. Um, USRTK.org. Uh, we are a little tiny, very poor nonprofit. Um, just <laughs> a group of of people. Uh, I'm a reporter. There, we have a scientist. We have a couple of uh, public interest researchers involved and what we do primarily is file freedom of information requests uh, with 
federal agencies as well as with state agencies uh, and uh, try to glean the truth about uh, public policy, public health policy matters so that we can then get documents and data and share them with other reporters and share them with policymakers and lawmakers and consumers. And, uh, you know, we spend a lot of money uh, trying to get these documents and court documents as well and, you know, discovery documents. And then we provide them all for free on our website um, or, as I said, or, or share them with with reporters at very big news outlets like the New York Times and elsewhere so that they can share them with the world. It's really just an endeavor to bring more light to, you know, hard to find information that is really, really important to all of us, to all of our lives. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, Carrie. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. There you have it. Go buy the Monsanto papers at the USA.com bookstore. Use the coupon code MAYPOD, that's M-A-Y-P-O-D, for 10% off on all titles. Thank you for listening to another episode of Tractor Time, brought to you by Acres USA and Barn to Door. Subscribe to our channel on YouTube, iTunes, or anywhere podcasts are available. Also find us on AcresUSA.com, EcoFarmingDaily.com, and don't forget to subscribe to our monthly magazine. Thanks again for listening, and have a great week.